0: Welcome to the On The Pitch Podcast. I'm Dave, and I'm joined by my co-host, Ash. Hey, guys, I'm Ash. And today, we're going to talk about the plethora of football that we have been treated to this week. And we're going to start with probably one of the biggest upsets and something that made my soul very warm, fuzzy, and probably everybody else that was waiting for this to happen brought them a moment of pure elation as the shock of the weekend was Watford 3, Liverpool 0. That is correct. You heard that right. We did not stumble. Watford 3, Liverpool 0. Where do we even start with this, Ash?
1: Uh, Let's start with saying that Watford fully deserved the win. They were the better side throughout the game. And, you know, the goals, Watford took their chances. They defended very well. And, you know, like you said, it was a huge shock. But on the basis of the game, Watford could have had 4 or 5 today
0: today weekend sorry <laughs> um they played very well now not a lot of people saw this coming i didn't i kind of looked at it and i was like all right they'll go they'll go to watford they'll win four nil call it a day and we'll all still be sitting here talking about how they've gone unbeaten but you have to give as you said we have to give watford full credit they limited liverpool to one shot on target and that has been their lowest return since February of last year. That is astounding. And that's the thing. I mean,
1: I had this inkling that, you know, I've said this for a few weeks now that, you know, Liverpool are starting to crack. The cracks are there. They're starting to show vulnerabilities. And, you know, I've said it to you. I've said it to Alex quite a few times that they are starting to look like a team that can be beaten. And West Ham almost got it like uh, last Monday. And now, you know, Watford at the weekend tore them apart. They were, The pace of Ismail Assar, I mean, he had a fantastic game. I mean, picking up two goals and an assist. I mean, his home forward lately has been very good. And, you know, that Liverpool team just looked like they're running out of steam. And, you know, they've got, they've got a tough test in Europe. I mean, yeah, I know they came back from 3-0 down against Barcelona last season. But Atletico Madrid are an entirely different team. Athletic's philosophy is defend, 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 and we'll grab a goal later. That's how they play, and this, the confidence in that Liverpool side is so low at the moment. I feel. I mean, they're going to win the league. They need twelve points, which they'll be able to pick up from who, who what they've got left. And if they don't, it will be the biggest collapse in history. But back to what back to Watford. Troy Deeney first goal against Liverpool. Brilliant finish. And it's made a salve as well. Two great goals. But for the second his second goal, he was helped out by Alexander Arnold, who has probably had his worst game in the Liverpool shirt.
0: You know, but it's interesting because tactically those cracks were bound to show. We have we have seen other sides against Liverpool get close and just not finish the job like Watford and Atlético de Madrid did. So it's interesting how Liverpool are going to do this in the Champions League because they're basically going to face the same type of opponent from a tactical standpoint like they did at Watford because Atletico is going to Anfield and they're going to want to protect that 1-0 aggregate lead. So it's, it's, it's interesting to see because Watford at times during this fixture, I think they might have had six at the back at one point. So at any point in time, Liverpool's trying to get forward, trying to break down a back line that is was consistently either playing with five or six defenders at the back. And when Watford had the chance to spring on the counter, they did exactly that. They sprung, but they made it count. I don't know what I'm more shocked by, the fact that Watford scored three or that Liverpool was held to none. But the 3-0 didn't even flatter Watford, did it? I mean,
1: I remember watching the game with my dad and my brother, and you know, Watford for the better side. Like, like I said earlier, but the 3-0 didn't flatter them. They could have had four or five. And this is a team that lost one of their best players in De La Feo early on. And it didn't even phase them. Roberto Pereira came on, picked up where De La Feo left off. And the team just... I mean, this is a Watford team that at the start of the season couldn't buy a goal, couldn't buy a point. And now, I said to you last week, I think they will escape relegation because they'll pick up enough points. I mean, they've had a bit of a tough run of late again, which is usual for a side fighting relegation, but huge three points against Liverpool. And it's going to boost their confidence crazy, like crazy, because they're the first team that's done it in the league, ending their 44-match unbeaten streak.
0: Matches like these are always tricky, because when you get these, these sides that are fighting for survival, it always seems like the pressure seems to be more on... The better side, so in this case Liverpool having all that pressure with the, unbeat- the invincibles talk, as I hold up my air quotes, and the pressure that they have with trying to finally win the league after 30 years, which sadly they're going to do, having the expectations in Europe that they do, and I wonder if all that finally just compounded and this is the result that we got. All that pressure and they finally cracked.
1: They've lost three of their last four games, and it, in the it, three losses, they haven't even scored a goal. They've been restricted to shooting. That's just, that's what people are working out though. You get at their fullbacks, which te- which teams have done. Chelsea did it last night. We'll get onto that. But what Ismael saw We know he's quick. We know he's got pace. He went at Robertson the entire game. So much so, second half, Liverpool switched their fullbacks over, which yeah. didn't help them. I think, I think that was to get in swinging crosses into the box because they couldn't go down the outside. That Watford defense was so compact, they just could not get down the outsides. I mean, Messina Mas- for Watford, he made three interceptions and recovered the ball 11 times for Watford. That's incredible defending.
0: It, it is. And the thing about lower, lower, t- lower table sides is that, as we like to say, they give zero fucks because they need to survive. So they're not worried about performing. They're more worried about trying to get the result. So when you get top table sides and you get those lower, those lower sides that are not doing well in the league, nine times out of ten, we should have figured out a result like this was coming because we all, we all saw it against West Ham and they got lucky. I mean, through Liverpool now,
1: I mean, they've got to find their confidence from somewhere, don't they? I mean, because they've the treble, the treble's gone for them. They can't win the FA Cup now. Um, they're going to win the Premier League. That's a given, unless something absolutely monumental happens, which it probably won't. Because okay, I know they have still got to play Chelsea and Man City, which right now are games they could potentially lose. But I think they can get four wins out of what they've got left. But not just that. Going into next season, what do they do? Because their defense is, if one of those players gets an injury, I mean, and I'm talking Van Dijk, Robertson, or Alexander-Arnold, there is no backup in those positions. And Liverpool have been extremely fortunate this season not to have injuries in those positions.
0: They have been. And I, I like to go back to what you, you were saying about the fullbacks being high up. Because I remember, I think I have mentioned at one point, tactically, if you press them... You might be able to get at him, or you attack them when those flanks are vacated. And now, as good as these people claim that Trent Alexander Arnold is is the greatest thing since sliced bread, which I highly, highly, highly disagree, he is he has lost possession 31 times, I think, during that match. And he made an error that led directly to goal. Now here's my whole thing. If you can figure out intelligently press Liverpool and put pressure on some of those fullbacks and force them into those eras, you may have unlocked a way to beat Liverpool. And their cracks, like you said. They're there. They're there. They're in the midfield too. And I will dare to say this and Liverpool supporters are going to be upset as I utter these words out of my mouth. Jordan Henderson isn't that good. And he can not be gotten even in the lineup. Because all I hear is this pontificating about how the loss happened because the midfield was weakened with the absence of Milner and Henderson. So... Even with those gentlemen in the lineup, I still think there's cracks there. We all know, as far as the attacking talent Liverpool has goes, please remind me the last time we've seen any of those guys track back, because I don't recall them ever tracking back. There is ways to beat Liverpool, and it was bloody proven over the weekend. So, uh... With that being said for Liverpool, they
1: finally lost. They didn't beat Man City's record. They managed to equal it with 18 Premier League wins in a row. Um, but moving on to the uh, Bournemouth Chelsea
0: game, which was <laughs> another roller coaster of a match for us. Yeah, I may have had a mini heart attack a couple of times watching this match.
1: Uh, let's start with your thoughts, Dave. How do you feel about the game?
0: Bloody Bournemouth. Damn you, Eddie Howe. Damn you. It is almost as if Bournemouth is our boogeyman. Because it, it, it happens every season, at least for the last couple of years, where we come up against Bournemouth and they either beat us or we get the result like this, where it's a draw. And I'll take the point in this case Bournemouth just, I, they always play well and they come up against Chelsea. I don't know what it is. What I do not understand, and that and bothers me, is that I think the boys came out and figured, all right, lads, this is Bournemouth, we got it. And then you find yourself in a battle. I'm just glad that Marcos Alonso did what he did, scoring two goals. And t- we took a point, he gets a brace, and I honestly thought we should have won that match. I ju- it just seems to me the boys get too comfortable if they get the lead or they become very deflated when they don't when they aren't able to establish a lead so it, it was up and down to me tactically I did I did like the three at the back I do like the wing backs I I do like the wing backs if if we can get maybe Ngolo this is going to sound crazy if we can get Ngolo back fit you can play that same formation and Alonso could have more freedom going forward knowing that he would have Ngolo Kanté to cover and shield the rest of that back line
1: Thinking about Marcus Alonso, I saw someone say in the Chelsea group that should he not just be a striker at this point because he's got all the attributes to be a striker. Why not put him
0: as a winger, even maybe yeah. even as a winger?
1: I was thinking that as well, and then play Emerson in behind because if we are on the other, if we are caught on the break, we've then got two defensive minded players on that left wing to get the ball back. And I just think that you know, Marcus Alonso, I've always stood by this; he's one of the best attacking fullbacks in the Premier League. We know he can't defend, I think a lot of people know that he's not the great best defensively, but going forward from free kicks from corners, always in the right place at the right time to grab a goal or two, and I think he's a highest scoring defender in the last three years in the Premier League. he is it's just madness that you know it's a great source of goals for Chelsea, and that wing back role really does get the best out of him because. We saw it against Bournemouth, right place, right time, twice. But from Chelsea's point of view, it's a game we should never have lost. I mean, we dominated that first half, had complete control. And once again, can see from a set piece, Caballero should have done a lot better. It was straight at him, but the marking was a mismatch. The second goal, lapse of concentration, ball across the box. It's in the back of the net. And from that point, it's only then at 2-1 down that Chelsea really think, oh, to go grab a goal now and then put pressure on Bournemouth for the rest of the game. And I know you can't put pressure on for an entire game, but it just feels like, against the lower opposition, Chelsea's motivation isn't as high as the likes of Tottenham, Arsenal, Liverpool. and the-, Liverpool. the motivation just doesn't seem to be there for the lower games.
0: It doesn't, and it drives me out of my skull. It almost, it's, to, to you said, it's almost to a fault where they just come out and they're like, oh, it's just Bournemouth. And they just, for some bloody reason, play down to their opponents instead of putting them away, which they could have done. We could have easily went into halftime and this could have been easily 2-3-0 our way going into the half because we missed a lot of chances.
1: I think the key chance was uh, when Mason Mount put the ball into Giroux and Giroud scuffed the shot which I was very surprised about, because on Drew's left foot inside the box, Mm. that's normally (laughs) bread and butter for him. And, you know, that shot missed, and then I think it was two, three minutes later, Bournemouth for a level. Which, you know, it's chances like that that we have to be taking at this level. I mean, luckily, other teams around Chelsea dropped points this weekend, but it's not going to keep happening. We have to start winning games and consistently. I mean, we concede far too many for the we conceded more goals than anyone else in the top six. That and, is crazy. That That's and I'm not, crazy. And I know Frank Lampard's still trying to figure out what his best side is, who to play at defence. I mean, the only person you can guarantee a spot in that back four is Reese James. And, I'll, and that is honest. Reese James is the only one you can guarantee in a back three or a back five, depending on which way you play it. I mean, right back, right wing back, Reese James can do both. But... He's the only one that I would put in there a hundred percent. I mean, maybe as well, quite a recent back as well, because, you know, he's a fantastic defender, reads the game perfectly, hasn't got the pace to play a fullback anymore, but at center back, it's perfect for him. They're maybe the only two I'd stick with there. And I do think Chelsea needs to strengthen in that area because, you know, Rudiger hasn't been the same player that he was when he first came to Chelsea. Samori did not have his best game against Bournemouth and that's a shame to see because he's been out of the team for a long time and coming back in he didn't do himself any favours. Uh, Andreas Christensen has been okay. He's been better of late but I think Chelsea should probably cash in on him and bring in a better centre-back. And Kurt Zouma, I'm okay with Kurt Zouma. I think he's had a good season. He's just had, not had the consistency of a partner next to him where he can develop as a player and develop that partnership. But it'll be an interesting summer defensively-wise for Chelsea.
0: It will be. I think with Frank, he just needs to stick with a back three. We play better with a back three. He has the players that are more than capable to play in a a three-back system. It's just a matter of getting the right guys for the job on the pitch, for lack of better words. And once he figures that out, will be fine. Maybe a couple more signings in the summer. But we have played some of our best games where we have had three at the back. And it doesn't take a bloody rocking scientist to, to figure that one out. If you watch it, it, we look better with three. at. We've always looked better, in my opinion, this season with three at the back. And some of our bigger, biggest victories have come because we've played three at the back. And this is the first time that these two sides have drawn in the Premier League in the previous nine meetings with Chelsea one five and Bournemouth is one four. Although when you watch these matches, you would beg to differ sometimes.
1: Yeah, I couldn't believe that when I saw it when I looked at the stats and I was like, wait a minute, first draw in the Premier League. That's because it's always even, either... Bournemouth like I said, since they've come up, they've always managed to somehow have something over Chelsea. Um they've always managed to get results against us. I mean the 4 0 last season was just we're not going to talk about that because it was horrific. But as a Bournemouth it's a well that's a big point for them, but they need to be winning the games against teams around them if they want to stay up. Uh, I know they have beaten Man United this season. They came close to beating Chelsea, and they've got Liverpool at the weekend, which will be a huge test for them, especially because Liverpool will be looking to bounce back. But it's like I said to you before, Liverpool, I mean, Liverpool, let's say Liverpool, Liverpool, Man City aren't desperate for points, whereas the teams in the bottom half of the table facing relegation, they need those points more. So it'll be an interesting game for sure because we know Bournemouth can turn up against big sides. But it'll be an interesting one for sure.
0: Looking forward to that. I guess we can move on to North London. Apparently there's a club there and they don't do much winning. Jose's <laughs> side. Only manages two goals and a loss to Wolves over the weekend. And funny enough, usually when you say Jose and two goals, the, the assumption is that they win because Joe is so defensive. However, that was not the case as it did finish in North London, Hotspud two, Wolves three. Your thoughts, sir?
1: Well, uh, good on Wolves. They didn't give up. Was behind twice and they won the game. I mean, the Wolves players, I admire them. I mean, I like watching Wolves play. They're such a good side. They've got quality throughout. And, you know, they're a team that, again, play three at the back, which is a... I think it's a balanced formation, because when you're out of possession, you can drop back five in the fence solid. When you're attacking, push your full-backs up as far as you can, and Wolves have the full-backs to do that. I mean, Matt Doherty is an extraordinary player. I mean, he's been at Wolves for such a long time now, and he's always getting goals. I mean, he scored in the Europa League midweek, and he scored again at the uh, weekend for Wolves. I was going to say Tottenham there for some reason. (laughs) But you know, Raúl Jiménez, who the rated striker, scores again. I mean, he's got 13 goals for Wolves this season, which has earned them 16 points. And you know, Diego Yota, who is banging form at the moment. Wolves are just a well-oiled machine. That brilliant manager. Okay, they love their Portuguese players, but it works for them. And. You know, they could realistically be in the Champions League next season because they're now level on points with Man United. And, it, you know, you don't see Wolves dropping too many points because they win most of their games. And for a team that's only their second year back in the Premiership, I mean, they're, they're already into the Europa League quarterfinals. Or is it the last 16 of the Europa League? I'm not sure.
0: I got to check that. I'm not even sure, honestly.
1: I think it's the last 16 of the Europa League, sitting sixth in the Premier League, And for a team that were in the championship two years ago, that's just incredible. Like the way they've resurged and the team they've built, and it's not even an ageing team; it's quite a young squad as well. But it's got the right balance of youth and experience, and they always seem to bring in the correct players. Um, As for Tottenham, well, there's not much to say. (laughs) There's not there's nothing to say, is there? I mean, they have problems. Yeah, I know they're missing their two key strikers. I mean, they're toothless up front right now. And it's probably going to
0: cost them Europe Champions League football. I'm going to say this. With Harry Kane in that lineup and fit, they're still toothless up front. Look who the manager is. <laughs> let's just start. Let's, let's just call it what it is. Jose Mourinho has not moved on from what brought him so much success to what modern football is now. I don't know what Jose's problem is and why he's so stubborn, but it seems that this is the issue everywhere he goes, and it's going to cause strife between his players and him and himself and the board. You would have told me or anybody that a Jose Mourinho side gets two goals. I'm like, bro, they're winning that match, hands down. This is not, it's not working for him. And I understand there's injuries, but I mean, let's be honest. Everybody's got injuries. Everybody's got boo-boos this time of year. What I will say to you is you say
1: about Mourinho's style of football. How how comes I think this is an unfair debate, but Mourinho gets criticized for his style of football, which is exactly the same as Diego Simeone's, yet Diego Simeone gets a lot of praise for how he does it. Why is there that contrast?
0: Because Jose's not a dick. To the point, Jose's not, Jose's a dick and Diego's not a dick.
1: <laughs> it's just
0: it seriously is just that. It is the perception of the public. Maybe there are some subtle differences in the way they play as far as the formation. Because with Diego Simeone, you know he's coming out most times in a 4-4-2. And he will defend. They will defend as a unit. They'll be compact and they will pressure they will pressure the attacking team and try to get them both side and narrow to one side of the pitch, where Jose tries to Tries his best, I guess, to adapt by playing a four-two-three-one, and then out of possession. You can see with Spurs out of possession, there's times where he, he gets brave for him anyway. And he'll try to sit there in a mid-block, in a compact mid-block, trying to hit on the counter. There are small little nuances that are different. But if we're going to be real here, I mean, people love Diego because he's Diego. And Jose is a dickhead, and that's why people don't like him. And that's why he gets criticized more for the style of football than for the reasons Diego doesn't get criticized, because you're right, it is the same type of football. The only difference, maybe, is just the formations that they play.
1: Okay, uh, rounding off the rest of the Premier League this weekend, uh, Everton drew 1-0 with May United. Uh, Carlo Ancelotti was sent off after the match for uh, disagreeing with a late decision, which disallowed Everton a winning goal. Uh mm. We're both in agreement the goal should have been disallowed, which is, you know, no arguments. Uh, Leicester's form continued to drop as they lost 1-0 to Norwich. Uh, Palace have probably saved themselves from relegation with a 1-0 win against Brighton. Jordan Ayer with the goal. Newcastle and Burnley played out a dull 0-0 draw. And West Ham also did themselves a favour by beating Southampton 3-1
0: pretty interesting here at the bottom of the Premier League as some of these sides, they, they did points and Norwich is in 20th and only has 21 points from 28 games. Villa, which surprised me because I would have I pegged them to stay up and not be in the predicament they're in right now, only having 25 points from 27 games and they're minus 18 in the goal differential column. Bloody but hell.
1: Villa did exactly what Fulham did. Spent way too much money and didn't get the... They overspent. mean, You see what Fulham did last year, spent £100 million, finished bottom. What Villa have done is they've spent money for the sake of spending money and not really... Well, they could have bought a quality player for more money, which would have given them more than the players they've bought. But um, I still think that the bottom three as it is now, and Bournemouth, Villa and Norwich, I think they're the three that will go down.
0: I can see that. I can see that. But I'm going to be me. I'm going to... I said West Ham's going down, and I'm going down with that ship if it goes down. Somewhere, West Ham's going to slip up. And I think either Watford or Bournemouth are going to catch him, and West Ham are going to be playing in the championship next year. It is interesting at the bottom of the table when you consider that in 18th, we have Bournemouth, and in 13th, we have Southampton, and there's only a seven-point difference. That is crazy.
1: Uh, moving on to the Carabao Cup final on Sunday afternoon. Uh, I think what most people thought was going to happen, Manchester City win 2-1 and this the Carabao Cup for the third time.
0: They keep one of their favorite trophies, I guess.
1: Uh, Aguero and
0: Rodri put Man Man,
1: Man City 2-0 up. Uh, Ali Samata got a goal back, but Villa never had enough to find the equaliser. And I don't want to say this, but congratulations, Man City. It's a trophy at the end of the day. It's what football's all about. And I'm sure they'll probably win the fourth one next year as well when there's no Champions League for them.
0: I would agree with that being that their manager is obsessive about every competition that they enter and they play in, which I guess isn't a bad thing after all, because at the end of the day, you're right. It is hard. It is silverware that you can display in the trophy case when it gets back to uh, when it got back to Manchester.
1: Um so that rounds out English football for the weekend. Let's go to Germany.
0: Yay! We'll start with well, Hoffenheim and Byron. Well mm. Lewandowski.
1: who needs Lewandowski, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, clearly Byron just figured out that they're like, hey, next man up, next man up. It is a talent factory at Byron Munich at the moment.
1: Uh yeah, they were 3 0 up in 15 minutes, which for the second time this season, I believe. And I saw the goals, and it was just so easy for them.
0: It looks like, it, honestly, watching the highlights, it looked like it was a bloody training session game. Like, all right, lads, we're going to go out here, kick the ball around, do a few things, and we'll, we'll call it a day. Hoffenheim had nothing, legitimately nothing, because the, the outcome of this one was Hoffenheim nil, Byron six. It is something mean, out of the training ground watching this match. I mean, holy hell. I think Coutinho even scored. How often do we say that? Ever? Wait, he scored he, twice. Scored twice. Imagine that. He, he can score people.
1: Uh, Joshua Zerksy as well, who's got his third goal of the season. He's 18 years of age. And he's basically Lewandowski's backup. But the way he took his goal was fantastic. I mean, brilliant footwork. And then to finish it, that, that boy will be a talent. I can say that now.
0: Byron will be fine, just fine with or without Lewandowski, with with um, that that young man sitting there behind him, which is not a bad thing. You sit there and you learn behind one of the greatest strikers in in Europe right now. It's a win win for everybody. It's a shame what happened in the second half of the match. Um, after Bayern
1: scored their sixth, the Munich fans unveiled a banner uh, opposing a uh, Hoffenheim owner, DMR Hop, and. After Bayern fans, after the players, the higher ups had pleaded with them to put it away. The game was suspended for twenty minutes, and as it resumed, in protest against the fans, the Hoffenheim and Bayern Munich players just kicked the ball amongst themselves for the last thirteen minutes, which I think was the right thing to do. Because why should you know why should fans be given what they want if they're going to do stuff like that? And it it ruins the game for the people who the other people in the stadium who didn't want that. I mean, okay, I know the game was over, 6-0, but there's no need to, you know, bring out an offensive banner. You know, it's got nothing to do with your club. You've done, enough, done nothing to you. But at the end of the day, um, it's a shame it happened, but I think Bayern Munich and Hoffenheim went the right way about it.
0: I concur. There's no... Regardless of what people feel as far as ownership players and all that there's no need for that at a football ground or at a match that's almost that's that's pretty bad and it's uncalled for and i'm glad that the way both both sides reacted were just like okay you guys are gonna sit here and act a fool then guess what we're gonna act a fool too and i think they completely did the right thing now the match also because i dropped my weekly referee nugget the match also could have been abandoned or stopped if the referee would have just told the fans, if you don't want to behave, I'll just, I'll just send them in the dressing room. Or you know what, I'll just call the match off and see how you like that. and get them where it hurts. If I'm the guy, guy reffing that match, I'm probably doing that. Because fans aren't going to learn until you give them some palpable consequence and you show them that you mean business. But regardless, at the end of the day... Everybody did the right thing. The players did the right thing. The fans acted like a fool, and the players were like, all right, we're just going to let it play out. We're just going to sit here and play. It looked like they were playing a game of hacky sack almost. <laughs> but I'm, I'm glad that happened because this, this is becoming, whether it's racism, whether it's anti-Semitism, whether it's issues we saw at the weekend with, with this match, this shit needs to stop because it is not appropriate, and it's quite repugnant, and it just needs to stop
1: um yeah but obviously Bayern get the three points and uh leipzig had a very poor game against leverkusen ooh
0: they sure did is it ends in a 1-1 draw um yeah about that that was i was taken i was taken a little bit aback by that result cuz i would have thought leipzig would have taken care of leverkusen
1: But we saw right in the season leverkusen played brilliantly against dortmund got the win there um Timo Werner had a very poor game. He only completed 44% of his passes and didn't take a single shot in the
0: entire game. He also found himself off sides on three separate occasions. <sighs> so, do you think
1: the uh, Liverpool links have got
0: inside his head or do you think it was an off game for him? It's hard to say. I know he's been in the news a lot because of the Liverpool links. He even made a comment regarding those links. I don't remember what it was, but I know they were fond that it made me want to throw up. He uh, unfollowed uh, Leipzig on Twitter as well. That, that's also quite puerile to do that. I mean, let's be professional. So I that's think true. for Timo, it was... it was. I, it, you know what? It could have been a combination of both the links and just having a bad game. You're, yeah, clearly, he's distracted by being linked with Liverpool. Then he had the fiasco, as you just mentioned on Twitter, of unfollowing the club, which, again... It's petty. It's petty. Yeah, it's, it's, it's that. And I, I believe that just all culminated in him to having a bad game. Now, I don't, under, I don't know if athletes comprehend this, but when you do things like that, it reflects bad on you, and it makes other clubs less likely to want to sign you because it shows them that you can't stay focused if you can't stay focused, you can't do your job. And when you can't do your job, you basically suck. Let's just tell the truth here. You're not the same. Timo needs to get his head back on straight because he is a key cog in what Leipzig are trying to do.
1: And they've fallen behind Bayern now by three points. And, you know, the way Bayern are playing at the moment, I can't see them dropping many points from here to the end of the season. With or without Leipzig.
0: It's bad for Leipzig, too, because he is such an intricate part of that attack. And when you only manage two shots on target and 37% of the possession, you're bound to have performances like this. They might have been even lucky to draw and in the end ultimately not lose. It was not a good day for Leipzig, that's for sure.
1: Um, moving on to the other game in Germany, uh... Dortmund win again. They beat Freiburg 1-0 thanks to a Jadon Sancho close-range finish.
0: I would have thought this match would have entailed Dortmund whooping on Freiburg. Apparently, I know nothing. But
1: at I was the end kind of, of surprised
0: de- at the scoreline. I mean, it was 1-0. But at the end of the day, it's three points. This is true. Th- this is true. <laughs> I'm not going to contest that. This is true. I just would have thought Dortmund with all that attacking Flair and Mr. Holland basically owning the entire universe at this point. I always would have thought there would have been more. I know Fre- Freiburg's not that great, but I don't think they're that bad either. I just think it's one of those sides Dortmund should have probably had an easier time with. But it, it, a win is a win and all that matters is that there's three points gained from yeah. that gained from that result. I mean that's Jane Sancho's sixteenth goal of the
1: season. He's also racked up sixteen assists as well. So uh, reports are coming kind of like that he's uh, very happy at Dortmund. So, make of that what you will, but maybe that's just trying to ramp up his price for summer. But I don't know. I remember we've, we've this is a running theme between our podcasts now. Whether uh, I think Dortmund have finished top four, you don't think they will, but
0: they've no. th- they haven't lost it since you said that. <laughs> apparently, uh, apparently, reverse psychology is great for, for any side in which I deem you to not finish in the top four. Uh, uh,
1: Mitch and Gladbach also won a threading game against Augsburg 3-2 which means if they win their game in hand they'll be level on points with Leipzig in second
0: place who is that game in hand with
1: Cologne Oh, that'll be interesting yeah very good game because Cologne is one of those teams where they can either they'll batter you it'll be a score draw or you'll batter them
0: it's just one of those teams Cologne, they are like, they're like that one friend you have, where they're just gonna be over dramatic, or they're gonna be too laid back. That that's Cologne, because like you said, you're either gonna get, they're either gonna come out and score a bunch of goals and win, or you're just gonna come out and completely ransack them, and run them over. Uh, those those fans in Cologne, I, I feel for them. They probably have a lot of frequent doctor visits supporting that side, because it's it's to quote the great Forrest Gump. It's like a box of chocolates, and with Cologne, you never know what you're going to get.
1: The um, overlook for the Bundesliga, eight points covered a top five, with Bayern, obviously, three points clear at the top. Uh, Leipzig in second on 49. Dortmund have thirty eight, forty forty eight. 48. Uh, Gladbach are on 46 with a game in hand. And uh, Leverkusen are fifth with 44 points, so a little bit off, but
0: by no means out of it. Leverkusen are sitting in fifth with a chance to piss in the punch and maybe make a realistic push for the top four in which would not include Dortmund because I'm sticking with my opinion
1: (laughs) (laughs) we'll see come the end of the season
0: we head to Spain to La Liga in El Clásico and where Real Madrid blanked Barça 2-0 this match was interesting this match was such a big deal actually in well, the so sense that we were coming off our, we were coming off the pitch of our match, and I saw grown men who don't run hard during ninety minutes of Sunday. We get to their car to make sure that they would get home for El Clasico. <laughs>
1: um, well, uh, Real Madrid 2-0 winners. Uh, PK had his rant in the media. Oh, Real Madrid were dreadful in the first half. We we should have beat them. Blah 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 as PK does, but. Oh. Uh, Real return to the top of La Liga. And when, when Mariano, who, let's best, best get this straight, Mariano has played one minute of football this season. He's taken one touch, which was a shot, against Barcelona, which he scored from. One minute of football, all season. And he scores in El Clasico. With his, with his only touch of the game. That is,
0: <laughs>
1: I can't comprehend that. That is just incredible.
0: Football, bloody hell. It's just one of those moments. Just the first time, one touch of the ball and you get a goal. He's touched That's the ball once. Annoying. Once all season, he has touched the football. The result, uh, though, brings, brings Real back to the top of La Liga, leapfrogging their eternal rival, Barcelona. And they have a one-point lead and it's coming down to the business end, of this, uh, business end of this season with 12 matches still left to play. Real are on... 56 points Barcelona around on 55 and this like most La Liga seasons is going to end up being the two horse race to see which one of these two don't slip up
1: uh well man of the match was Danny Carvajal because he was fantastic I mean he had a hundred percent hundred percent success rate in all his tackles he completed uh his aerial jewels and he won six out of his nine jewels as an overall He also provided the assist for Mariano, so completely deserved his Man of the Match award.
0: We need to take a minute to address Casamiro, because Casamiro had a great game in the midfield. He won all three of his tackles. What an aerial duel, which is kind of cool, because I don't think he's that tall. But hey, the only thing that matters is he won it. And he's won the last 17 of his... Last seven, excuse me, last seven of his 15 overall duels. So it's it's good to see Madrid doing what we're used to seeing them doing, which is we're going to control the midfield, we're going to get numbers up high, and we're going to try to score goals. And we all know Barca has the Messi dependency, which today showed. When Messi draws blanks, things go bad.
1: He only managed three shots in the entire game, uh, lost possession 17 times. But... To Messi's other side, his creator side, he did create a uh, complete 95% of his passes, but Antoine Griezmann, mm. uh, Barca just when Messi doesn't score, you'd wonder where the goals are coming from. I mean, Griezmann will score goals, but like we said before, he's not a dreadful player, but he's not that 20-goal-a-season striker that Luis Suarez is, who they're missing right now.
0: Griezmann, that addition, like we had mentioned, still to this day makes no sense because you would think that he would seize the opportunity he has now with Suarez out and try to get these goals and aid Messi and aid Barca in the effort to try to win the league and get on the score sheet and build his confidence and all that good stuff, and it's nothing. It's it's mind-boggling how that even came to fruition. But again, it's proven that when Messi has an off day or Messi can't produce, Barca ultimately falter. Uh,
1: Just a quick mention for Vinicius Jr., who scored Real Madrid's first goal. He's now the youngest scorer in El Clasico in the 21st century. It was a lovely ball played in by Cruz and the shot deflected off PK's shin, which gives Estega no chance. But yeah, I think Real Madrid's second half fully deserved a win. Uh, Barca have got issues they need to resolve, but... Looking at the rest of Spain, uh, Sevilla third on 46 points after beating Osasuna 3-2. Getafe followed up knocking Ajax out of Europe midweek by beating Mallorca 1-0 to maintain their position in the top four. And uh, Atletico Madrid, um, 11th draw of the season for them against Espanyol, which has left them in fifth. So a lot of work for them to be done if they want Champions League football next season.
0: They have a lot of work. A lot of work ahead of them. So... And, if,
1: and just to want, end off in Spain, if Real Sociedad are able to win their game in hand against Eibar, they'll leapfrog Atletico Madrid.
0: Wow. I couldn't even fathom that. Wow. So that rounds out uh, Spain this week. I guess we'll head over to uh, to Italy, where this just didn't, everybody. I don't know if you know that the sky's blue, but that immobile man... He's pretty good at football. As Lazio beat Bologna 2-0. But he didn't score this time, did he? <laughs> no, but he is still always directed. He's still always directly involved in their play and in their, in their build-up, which is just amazing because usually some guys will just get pissed off because they're not scoring, where he just does the complete opposite. I'm not scoring, but how can I get my teammates involved so that they can score?
1: Yeah, he grabbed his uh, seventh assist of the season, didn't he, against... Uh bologna um luis alberto whacking correa with the goals uh immobile set up alberto and alberto set up correa so we said last week that luis alberto was another key part of that team didn't we i mean he's getting
0: quite a few goals as well we did but yeah you're um, you're welcome listeners you're welcome
1: but uh lazio uh that was their 60th goal of the season um after correa scored and uh and Mervé's played a part in 34 of them, which is 56.6%, just to show how vital
0: he is to that team. It is amazing what Lazio are doing. And its I don't think anybody saw it coming, honestly. I didn't, that's for sure.
1: I expected Juve to walk Serie a this season.
0: Well, I think most people, if you ask them, would, would all make the assertion that Juve is going to do what Juve does. But then they hired Maurizio Sari, And yeah, we see how far that's got them.
1: It's got them going sideways
0: <laughs> <laughs> direction. He's very used to moving in. Um,
1: but yeah, they're now top of the Serie A by a point. Obviously, Juventus have a game in a, game in hand, which is against Inter Milan. And Inter Milan have two games in hand: one against Juventus, one against Sampdoria. So, uh, be interesting. The Lazio Juventus Inter Juventus game will be the interesting one. I feel because the, I think whoever wins that. Well, if Juventus win it, I think that ends Inter Milan Serie, A hopes. I concur. There's um, not many games in Italy this week, but there was a lot of goals. Uh, let's just ask Atalanta about that after they put seven past Lecce.
0: Lecce 2, Atalanta 7. They, they were scoring goals for fun. They're just scoring goals for fun.
1: It's the third time they've hit seven this season.
0: That's astounding. And they've yeah. reached... They have reached 70 goals for their Serie A season, and this is the third time, like you said, that they've hit seven goals. Now, sit there, sit, sit there, everybody, and think to yourself, when was the last time your favorite side scored seven damn goals in a season? Don't worry, I'll wait. I can answer that for Chelsea. You put seven past Grimsby. (laughs) You would, (laughs) that was a cup competition.
1: (laughs) It's still seven goals.
0: (laughs) Well played, sir. Well played. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Italy has had some issues, though, with, uh, fix- with the lack of fixtures due to coronavirus being in major concern in the northern part of the country, where a lot of those cases are. And um, it's interesting to see how this affects the rest of the league, because like you said, there are other sides that are going to have games in hand. And that's going to be an intricate part in how the top four in Champions League football plays out, not just the title.
1: Yeah, especially with Inter, as they've got to play 30 nights in Europa League as well. So that could really hinder their season a lot more now with having to cram extra games in.
0: It, it's going to be interesting. And we all know if Inter, if it's anything Antonio Conte does well, it's bewailing. Bewailing the compounding issue of fixtures. The players aren't getting enough rest. We need to do something about this somebody tell him to sit down and relax. He's never done <laughs> good in Europe anyway. At some point, they'll, they'll be out of the Europa League and they'll be trying to get whatever they can get out of Serie A. That's my hot take for the week, everybody.
1: So, yeah, Atlanta hit seven goals. Duvan Zapata got a hat-trick in that game. Uh, nothing much happened in league. Um PSG won, which is really all that matters out there. So mm-hmm. we're going we're to head across to Monday and Tuesday's FA Cup games.
0: The oldest cup competition on the face of the planet.
1: And the I'm very, best,
0: very, very fond of it. The best cup competition in the world. Amen. So the, we are going to talk about Chelsea and Liverpool. Chelsea 2, Liverpool 0. And this is the part where I just smile. And um, I'm let <laughs> you take it from here. Well, I
1: smile. Well, the last two times Chelsea beat in the Liverpool in the FA Cup, we've gone on to win the trophy. Which is so,
0: you know, there's a chance.
1: So um, you
0: telling me there's a chance.
1: Well, if it's always a chance, <laughs> uh, Willian gave Chelsea the lead after 13 minutes. Uh, after some fantastic goalkeeping from Adrian, no, I'm joking, he spilled it. Um, <laughs> uh, it was straight at him, and you know, that's like I expect Kepper to do it at some point, but we'll get we'll come on to Kepper in a bit. But uh, yeah, Chelsea's pressure from the goal kick, uh, Fabinho lost it. I think he had a very poor game. Uh, he lost the ball on the edge, Willian, edge of the box. That's what Willian does it wasn't a great shot, was it? I mean, it was straight down Adrian's throat.
0: No, but hey, we got the end result we wanted, ended up in the back of the net.
1: Oh yeah. And you know, from there, Liverpool didn't, I mean, they looked okay in the first half. They created some chances, but Kepa was fantastic in goal. Yeah. And I was worried about this because Capillero not done badly since he's been given the jersey, but he hasn't really, and he's some fantastic saves, but, still been conceding, and for Kepper, who's been out the team for six weeks to come back in and put on a performance like that, he looked dominant, he looked confident, which we have not seen from him since last season and i'm I'm happy because I know there's a lot of rumors about other Chelsea goalkeepers coming in or Chelsea looking at another goalkeeper and I wouldn't, I'm i still not against that, not at all, but I am so happy for Kepa that he's been able to put on a performance like that and I really hope it gives him a boost for the rest of the season because if we want top four, we're going to need to uh, have a top goalkeeper. And a performance like that is only going to do work wonders for him.
0: It is, you know, and his confidence should be rising and hopefully he's gotten the point after being frozen out and left out. Maybe he's got the point that he needs to... To get his stuff together and be the keeper that he, honest, quite honestly, got paid to be. He made three amazing saves in succession, which kept the door shut on Liverpool in the second half, where he was um, barely tested going forward. And uh, Liverpool's own Ross Barkley, everybody, puts the game out of reach as he runs from the inside of his own half with the ball and finished in the bottom left, giving... Adrian, not a bloody chance to make a save.
1: Looking at that, um, when he got it from inside his own half, I think, come on, just pass it to Pedro, pass it. He's like, he just kept running. I was like, oh, no. And then he finished. I was like, bloody hell. He's only bloody gone and done it. And like, credit to him. He did fantastically well with that ball. It reminds me a little bit of the Hazard goal against Arsenal where he put uh, Cochrane on his ass and just ran the length of the pitch. But not as good as Hazard, but still a brilliant goal to send Liverpool out like, of the FA Cup,
0: which is always great news. Speaking of confidence, we saw with maybe we saw with Keppel with his confidence increasing. I'm pretty sure that may have had the same effect with with Ross, too. He's been catching a lot of shit from people, and it's just good for him to get that goal and to know like he's talented, it's there. We just for some reason it's not consistent. I would like to see it more often, but I imagine he must have been elated scoring against what in essence is his hometown team and making sure that that score was a score that essentially put them away. And got us on to the next round of the FA Cup.
1: What I want to mention is that the key player in that game was 18-year-old Billy Gilmore. He was fantastic. I mean, what an absolute brilliant game he had. And How old is he? He's 18 years of age. Wow. And he played like he's been playing football for 10 years.
0: At I can tell his age by watching him on the ball. He, he, he bossed the middle of the park against grown ass men.
1: Uh, Billy Gilmore won both his tackles and completed six of his 11 jewels. So, you know, he didn't just. People think of him as a passing midfielder, but he got stuck in. He won the ball back and he wasn't scared. Like, he just looked like it was a stroll in the park for him. And. He's given Frank Lampard a real selection. I mean, before the game, Frank Lampard said that he des- he was in the team because he deserved to be there. And with the injuries Chelsea have now in Kovacic and Kante with and Jorginho suspended, you have to think that Billy Gilmore will start against Everton at the weekend alongside probably Loftus-Cheek potentially and Mason Mount or Ross Barkley because that's the only options we have left in midfield. But for him to put on a performance like that in a big game and the maturity he showed as well; like he wasn't erratic. You know, he did all the right things. He didn't try to be too clever. He just kept it simple when he needed to. And I think he's got the similar composure to Ethan Ampadu. And I think that he could be a real star for Chelsea going forward.
0: He will be. He will definitely be a star going forward. And he he did the one thing every player should do: you should perform well enough to give your manager a headache and push the issue to let your manager know that, hey, I'm here and I belong in the starting 11. I have the talent. If I'm not even going to be in the starting 11, you should at least put me in the side as a substitute at the very least.
1: And he does a similar role to Kante. I mean, he recovered the ball nine times against Liverpool. And yes, Jorginho can do that role as well. But I think that with Jorginho, he doesn't really get stuck in as much. He's more of that right place, right time, passing, passing player. Whereas Billy Gilmore... I mean, he was up against Thaddeus Mane, who just he took the ball off him like it was nothing. I mean, what he did to Fabinho, oh, that was just beautiful. The way he just put the ball past Fabinho, 18 years of age and the confidence to do that. I mean, he's got a bright future at Chelsea. He really does.
0: Well, I'm always a tad bit of a cynic with that because everybody has a bright future at Chelsea, but are they going to get in the side to actually play and flourish? That's my well, question.
1: Well, we've seen it with Frank Lampard. He will give the players who deserve a game a chance. I mean, Reese James is 20 years of age, starting right back. Mason Mount, 21, starting in midfield. Tomori, not played much of late, but at the start of the season was playing games. Uh, Tammy Abraham, 21 years of age, star striker, out of out injured. Pulisic, who's 21, was in the team before he got injured. Hudson's away, injured. So, they'll get a chance as long as Frank Lampard's here. And with the injuries we've got in midfield, Billy Gilmore has to
0: start against Everton this weekend. There's
1: no one else who can play there.
0: I guess my only concern with that is, is that's all fine, but what happens when we start bringing players in and we start buying players?
1: We have to do it the right way. Like, like we said before, we have to uh, we have to decide some experience because that's what we're, we're lacking. And I stand by that. We need a leader and some experience, but we don't need to go and overdo it and, you know, replace all the young players and throw them out. What we need is we need a player that can challenge Tammy Abraham up front, not take his place, but fight for his place and push each other. So whereas if one of them doesn't have a good game, the other one can come in for the next game, which, I've, which you know, we've spoken about. And it's the same for Mason Mount. He does not get the credit he deserves. Okay, I'll be honest. Yes, he can work on his finishing in the final third of the pitch. But what he doesn't get credit for is the way that he will set off a press and the way that he will work for the team. Selflessness, which you do not see in many players these days. But he is brilliant to run for 90 minutes, no matter what. He'll press, he'll win, he'll tackle. And he deserves a lot more credit because there's a lot of fans out there that will criticise him for not scoring or assisting. But as a midfielder, there is so much more to football than that. So... And he's 21 as well. He's got a lot to learn. He's got a, a lot of improving that he can still do. And I think next season, with players like Ziyech around him, he'll be a much better player.
0: He's, he's going to be something to behold as he matures and he, he gets more match time under him. People also forget, too, in the with this modern game and the fascination of goals and the excitement and all of that, people forget... If you've played the sport and you've played midfield, you kind of understand that as your job as a midfielder, you have to be able to do it all. You got to work hard to get the ball back. You have to work hard to distribute that ball to the more creative players. You got to work hard to initiate a press. And that's probably the best thing about Mason Mount is all those things you mentioned. To accentuate your point that I'm pretty sure sometimes he's so fucking fixated on winning the ball back and making something happen that people are quick to give him shit when he misses a chance. But how about when there's been matches where it seems like everybody's head is in the ground and he is still working his ass off regardless of what that score is? He plays for the badge, which is
1: rare. Not one you can... These days, yes. But uh, for Liverpool, uh, they're at the FA Cup. They've still got the league title, I suppose. But yeah, they need to pick themselves up from the rocky period they're having.
0: It's not going to get any easier. They have to... I mean, I know the match is at Anfield, but it's still a quality point in Atletico de Madrid. And are Atletico de Madrid going to do the same thing they did in the reverse fixture. And a Liverpool at Anfield, or are they going to be able to decipher how to beat Atletico de Madrid? Because a lot of these so-called pundits are saying, well, it's at Anfield. Last time I fucking checked, Anfield doesn't physically play football, people. It's the well, 11, was... 11 starters that roll out on the, the pitch that play football.
1: What I will say is this. Liverpool will score at Anfield, so I reckon Atletico have to get an early goal because Liverpool will score at Anfield.
0: I'm going to say this because I just like to be recalcitrant. <laughs> I'm just going to say this. Atletico are going to get an away goal. Atletico are going to get an away goal and we're going to see what happens because this whole magic of it, it's almost people guarantee them to score at Anfield. And I'm like, no. I, I don't bloody care about Anfield. Know this. Atletico de Madrid is a worthy opponent. And if I've learned nothing from Diego Simeone, is he loves being the underdog and pissing in the punch. I feel, <laughs> Atletico de Madrid, I, I feel that the, the chance that they have to beat Liverpool at Anfield is very, very, very likely to happen especially Liverpool's experiencing a dip in form. That's just me.
1: It'll be an interesting game for sure. Uh, rounding out the FA Cup games that have also already taken place this week. Uh, Arsenal beat a spirited Portsmouth 2-0 at Fratton Park with goals from Socrates and Eddie Nketiah. Um Newcastle overcame a very late scare by West Brom to win 3-2. I know Alex will be happy to hear that Miggy Almiron got two goals in that game and they were both brilliant goals as well. Um... The third came from Valentino Lorenzo. Sheffield United defeated a stubborn red side, 2-1 after extra time. Uh, goals from David McGoldrick and Billy Sharp sent them through to the quarterfinals. And we have a few more FA Cups that remain this week. So maybe we'll do a little score prediction on these this week to see how they go, if you're up for that.
0: I'm going to try to properly prognosticate some stuff, but can I just have one second to talk about Miguel Almirón? Just because it popped into my head, right? Because he gets a lot of shit, but I don't appreciate it. Yes, he came from LF, MLS, and we know what MLS is. Here's my thing, though. He came from a very attacking fluid system that Tata Martino ran, and it worked brilliant for him, and he had the pieces around him. Yes, this is the Premier League. Yes, it's more physical. Yes, it's a pain in the ass. But Migi is doing the best that he can. And I think those two goals are going to help him boost his confidence because people forget there's a big difference from Tata Martino To fucking Steve Bruce, who talks about bacon and his pressers. For those of you that (laughs) haven't seen it, go to YouTube. It's grade A hilarious, I promise you. So I just want to put that out there. You can't just sit there and berate poor Miguel Almiron. Because for those of you out there who have never kicked the football before, there's a lot of things that contribute to the way a footballer performs. And the system and manager is one of them. And I say that as a current player and a current coach. That's all I wanted to say about Miguel Almirón. The talent is there. In the right system, that man is going to score goals. I said to Alex yesterday after the game. I said he's too good for Newcastle. Thank you, Ash. Thank you. That that's the truth. That is the truth. It's 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 not always the player being the sole issue when they move clubs and leagues and countries. Sometimes it's literally the system. I mean, what do you see at Newcastle that screams talent or that screams quality? Because I don't see anything.
1: Newcastle don't, I mean, their forward players don't score enough goals. I mean, they've got some very exciting talent in that side as well. But it's not, it's the team that doesn't seem to work. It's the team. That and you know, they've got, got Alan St. Maximin. Alan St. Maximin, who I think is a brilliant football player, he could have gone anywhere. You know, Newcastle got him. Fair enough to them. They're actually spending money, which is unusual for them. But, you know, Miguel Almoron is their top scorer with six goals. But a lot of their goals come from their centre-backs. And that's okay. But, you know, it's a, a, goal's a goal not goal. It doesn't matter who scores at the end of the day. But when you've paid £40 million pounds for a striker in Joel Linton, you want more. Because he has not been brilliant in the Premier
0: League. He really hasn't. He has. No, he has not. He, he, he has not. He's been torrid, and he's be, watching him has become just as much of a mundane task as watching Newcastle on match day try to play a professional football match. He
1: scored three goals for Newcastle in all competitions this season. Three goals.
0: 60 million. Well, 40 million. 40 million, excuse me, for 40 million.
1: And that's the thing. You think of Miguel Almiron, Alan St. Maximin, Joel Linton. That is a very good front three as individuals. Mm-hmm. But it's the way that Newcastle play. It's so dull and boring. And then you look for them, I mean, the longstaff brother than midfield. They both look like very good players. But it's just something about Newcastle is they just don't perform very well, and they think they're a bigger club
0: than what they actually are. I just it goes. It, some of it goes back to just being the manager. First thing is as a manager, the first thing. That you should be thinking of is how does what system fit how do how can I fit a system to the players? Not the players fit into a system. Steve Bruce takes a different approach to this and kind of tries to utilize the talent that he has with that front three. Maybe this is a different story. You know, maybe if you offer him some bacon and more money, he might be inclined to change the bloody thing. But he has it. And I think a lot of that comes down to down to being a manager. You can't always try to ingratiate your players into your style because it doesn't work like that. That's that's that was my issue or is my issue with that situation. But just for the record everybody, Miguel Almirón, I promise you is as good as advertised. Speaking about Newcastle,
1: though, the players in the system it reminds me of Brighton and how Gary Potter wants Gary Potter wants those that team to play because Brighton want to play football and I have nothing but respect for that, but they've also got that solid base at the back with Lewis Dunk and Shane Duffy, I think is his, is his defensive partner. And the way Brighton plays, okay. I know they lost at the weekend and you know, they are facing a relegation battle, but this is, this isn't a team that have hundreds of millions of pounds to spend, but they try and play football. They don't just want to play route one all the time. I mean, they had that option with Glenn Murray off the bench because he's six foot plus plus. And it's always a good alternative alternative to have. Chelsea have it with Giroux. but the way that Brighton are playing under Graham Potter, he's got the players and the system as a unit, and they and it works. But at Newcastle, there's the players, but no system. I, mean, I know they like playing through it at the back, and I just feel that Newcastle. Side, I mean, that Newcastle side, if they played more expressive football, because they've got the players to do it definitely got the players to do it if they played an attacking 4-3-3 they'd get goals but they're so negative
0: that's why newcastle supporters are as can with the way things are at that club and they have every right to be
1: well the owner's a dick isn't he let's be honest
0: mike ashley's a fucking idiot he's a
1: dick no one likes him oh every time oh i'm gonna sell the club I'm not selling the club. I'm going to sell the club. I'm not going to sell the club. It's pissing everybody off because he doesn't like spending money on it. If you're not going to invest in a football club, you might as well just fuck off and not bother because what is the idea? What is the point of a football club? You want to win trophies. You want the best players you can get. You want to win games. If you're not going to invest to do that, then what is the point? The only way he's there is a a, a moneymaker for himself. That's the only reason he's there. He doesn't care about football and people who don't care about football should not own football clubs.
0: I wholeheartedly concur with that.
1: Wholeheartedly. And that's where I think we're going to end it uh, for this week.
0: (sighs) Dave, that's Ash. This has been the On The Pitch Podcast. And wherever you are, we wish you a good morning, a good afternoon, and a good night. Thanks for listening, everybody.